we're in, we're in Amarillo. Karen and I are headed to, uh, to San Antonio for this pastor's gathering. I got a call that had been canceled. And so I was pretty bummed. And so Karen's like, well, what should we do? What do you want to do? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm, you know what I need? I need a hamburger. I need a cheeseburger. So we rolled into to, to Whataburger, where that's where all good Texans hang out. And we went into a Whataburger, and we were, we're sitting there. I'm eating, and because anyway, so I'm eating a burger. And Karen says, "What do you think we should do?" And again, I says, "I, I honestly don't know. I'm just so disappointed that this thing's been canceled." And Karen says, "Well, I know what we should do. We need to go see your mom." We need to get to Houston. We need to help your mom. I go, you know, there's like a storm coming. And she goes, yeah, I know. But God gave me a word this morning. And she read the word that God will make a way for you. He'll clear a path for us. And, and God will take care of us. And so, you know what? said, okay, I trust you. Because I know my wife hears from the Lord. And so, uh, so we, we went and we got gas. We filled up. And it took us 20 hours to get from Amarillo to Houston, Texas. And that was straight driving. And so... Texans could, you know what, they, they could, you know, buy some snow plows. And so, uh, <laughs> and so we hit the storm about Waco. It took us, it took us 20 hours. Uh, we, we actually have a, have a picture. This is a picture, and all the roads were closed. That's just us. And so you couldn't see. That's a, that's a, that's a four-lane interstate. And so you couldn't see the side. You could not see the sides of the road. Uh, so what we learned, we learned to get behind an 18-wheeler. Those are two 18-wheelers. Then we would just drive in their ruts for 20 hours. That's what we did. When they stopped for fuel, we stopped for fuel. We named them Moses. And so... Uh, <laughs> And, and I tell you, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but when, when you lose, when the power grid goes down, when you lose power, uh, you lose the internet. Now the young, younger generation says, now we have a crisis. And so, so you lose the internet, you lose the ability to, to, to exchange money electronically. But good news, I'm a boomer. We still carry cash. You know what? Boomers rock in times like this. And so, so I, was, I always went to the front of the line. And so I got in one place, went to the front of the line. I looked at some millennials and like, hey, how's that debit card working for you now? And uh, because in my day, you guys may not know this, but in my day, we carried little pieces of paper. They were green in color. They had pictures of presidents on them. And some presidents are worth more than others. And then when we wanted to buy someone, we handed people a stack of that, and they gave us something in return. That's how we, and so, and so it was like a third world country. We got, we got uh, I mean, we traveled through the night. It was, many times it was just us on the road. And there, there was a time that, you know, I totally melted down and like lost it. I can't do this anymore. And Karen's like, you know, encouraged and whatever. And so we, we kept going. And, and we got to my mom. We, we drained the water in my mom's house, all of her pipes. Then we relocated my mom to Bay City, Texas, which is right on the coast. It's where the Colorado River, not the same Colorado River that runs through the Gang Canyon. Um, but anyway, and so at Matagorda Island, Bay City, Texas, uh, we got there. My sister lives there. They're, they're on well water. We got her there so she'd have water, so she'd have heat, she'd have people around her. And then, then we drove straight back from Bay City, Texas to Pueblo, Colorado in one shot because we knew that, well, we knew that we may not find hotel, that may not have any, electricity, anything like that. And so I actually, in my truck, I carried a lot of gas in cans in case we couldn't find fuel because that was a problem because when you don't have electricity the the the, the pumps don't work it's amazing how that works and so uh 
And so anyway, we, we made it back, and we're so thankful to be out of that. And so it, it's good to be back, and, and it's good that I came to Colorado and learned how to drive in the snow because there's some Texans that, well, we'll that's a, that is another subject. So I want to talk to you this morning because like any pastor can make any story work in a sermon, but I really, really believe this story works for the sermon as far as some of the principles that I learned. And I thought, I actually thought about this message when we were on the way. The power of encouragement. We've been in the book of 2 Corinthians. And so I want to talk to you about the power of encouragement. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 7, verses 2 through 16 is where we're going to be today. And I want to talk to you about the power of encouragement because I here's what I'm learning, especially in this season. Christians better learn how to encourage one another. And quit judging one another, quit criticizing one another, understand we're all on the same team. We better learn what the power, what it means to encourage one another in a biblical way. Because without the encouragement that Karen and I had for each other through this, we may have never made it there. We may have never made it back. We may have been stuck there. And so Paul is writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 about this issue of the power of encouragement. Now listen, we're going to look at all 16 verses, but, but I'm going to read a couple of verses, 2 through 4, just so you understand the context is like the focal passage. Here's, here's what it says, 2 Corinthians chapter, two, uh, chapter 7, verses 2 through 4. It says, and so Paul just starts off. Paul had already had a pretty strong conversation with them. And so in 1 Corinthians, and they're, they're responding back. And so Paul says, make room for us in your hearts. How many of us know that is true? That sometimes when you go through difficulty in a relationship, when you're frank with someone, when you're honest with someone, if you're not careful, they'll wall off their heart to you, right? All of a sudden, they will no longer make space in their heart for you. And what Paul is saying, he's begging them, please make space for me in your heart. Don't wall off. Don't shut down. Please understand, just make room for me. And this is, he's just pleading, please make room for us in your hearts. We have, and this is a powerful statement, we have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one, taken advantage of no one. I don't say this to condemn you. These are powerful statements. Since I've already said, that you're in our hearts to die together and live together. And I'm very frank with you. And I have great pride in you. And I'm filled with encouragement. I'm overflowing with joy in all of our afflictions. And so Paul is coming to this place and he's encouraging them. They had had a frank conversation. They had had a difficult conversation. And Paul is coming back on the backside reminding them about encouraging them, reminding them about his love. He has a purpose, and it's not to condemn them. Have you ever been encouraged by someone, and someone tries to encourage you, but at the same time you feel like you're being condemned? At the same time you feel like you're being judged? At the same time they're using that statement to try to make you feel like that you just didn't live up to the mark, that you were a total failure. And so what Paul is doing, this is so important when you encourage someone, what Paul is saying, hey, I'm being very frank with you, and guess what? I'm not saying this to condemn you. I'm not even saying this to, for you to like, I'm not questioning your love to me. Because sometimes in conversations and conflict and difficulty, if we're not careful, we'll, we'll, we'll try to encourage someone, but what we're really doing, we're questioning their love for us or we're questioning their commitment. And so Paul's saying, I'm not doing any of that. Man, I love you. So, so I want to I help you understand this issue of encouragement with three different groups of people or three different groups of people that need encouragement in life. The first one is this. A church body needs encouragement from the leaders. A church body, you need to listen. You need to know that you're loved. 
You need to know that your church leaders, your pastors, your elders, your, your ministry partners, your ministry leaders, your life group leaders, you need to know that they have your best interests at heart. That they're making decisions based upon what is best for the whole body. That they love you. That they care for you. That you need to know that. I mean, you just need to know this. Verse 8, Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 7, 8 says, For even if I grieved you with my letter, I don't regret it. And if I regretted it, since I saw that the letter grieved you, yet only for a little while... And so Paul is talking to them about how they responded to their frank conversation, how they responded to like their rebuke. And, and, and well, Proverbs, the Proverbs, uh, Solomon talks about the Proverbs chapter 27, verse 5. He says, better an open reprimand than concealed love. The wounds of a friend, and this is important, are trustworthy. But the kisses of an enemy are excessive. Listen, encouragement in life and relationship is meaningless. If it's just shallow, if it's just flattery, it has to be an honest appraisal of, of strength. I mean, have you ever had somebody around you, whether it's in business, whether it's in family, whether it's in relationships, and they're always telling you how great you are, they're always telling you how wonderful you are, and they're always, they're always talking about those things that are very, very complimentary of you, and then all of a sudden you wonder if it's for real. What do they want? Is it for their advancement? Is it for their betterment? And all of a sudden, you don't listen to them like you once did. This issue of encouragement is just not flattery. Proverbs 29.5 says, A person who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. I mean, when you, when you look at this issue, a person that just, just, just flattery, I mean, I mean it, is, it, it would not have been loving of Karen, right? Is that when we were, we were on that road and we're on that interstate, interstate and we're making our way to Houston. And I learned, it's kind of crazy, but now I know what rumble strips are for. Uh, when you can't see the edges of the road, you ride the rumble strips. And, and, so, and so sometimes, you know, we would be driving and Karen says, hey, I think the rumble strips are on this side of the car and not my side of the car. I think you need to move over. I think you need to get in the tracks. I think, I think maybe we need to slow down here, Charlie. I mean, I mean, we'll get there. Just slow down. And so there were times that she would say, you know, some correction, like, like maybe we need to do this. It would not have been loving for her, right? To realize I crossed over on the, on the rubble, rubble strips, rumble strips, and now I'm headed for the ditch. I'm about ready to go over the cliff. I'm about ready to go over the bridge. And she continually tell me, you're a great driver. I mean, you're doing wonderful. Just keep it up. Just keep, can I just tell you, that's what our world wants the church to do. See, our world doesn't understand this. See, the world is pressing in on the church right now. You just encourage us in whatever we believe. You just support us. You just agree with whatever we believe. You just, you just tell us how great we are. Listen, that's not a healthy relationship. A healthy relationship around you is when someone sees you, they love you, they believe the best in you. They're not condemning you. They're not judging you. They want the best for you. And they're willing to say, you know what? I think you need to get off the rumble strips of your life. You know what? I think you're headed for the ditch. You know what? I think you need to tap the brakes. I think you need to tap the brakes on this relationship. Listen, I am not questioning your love for me. I am leaving my heart open to you. I am not judging you. I am not saying this to condemn you. See, a real encourager does not go around telling you how great you are all the time. When they, when they speak encouragement into your life, see, for, for an encourager, there's balance. They know when to say it. They know what to say. They know how to say it. 
so that you don't feel judged or you don't feel condemned. And Paul is encouraging the church not with flattery. And here's the fascinating thing. He did it in three ways. And listen, there's an outline. There's an outline that you can use in, in, in your marriage, and in your relationships, in your work relationships. If you want to know Paul's outline, and I, I, I almost preach this so many different ways or, or applied this so many different ways. Paul used this outline. The first thing Paul did, and you can start off a conversation like this, and the first thing that Paul did is say, this is what I appreciate about you. Why is it we only tell someone what we appreciate about them only on the big stuff? The anniversary, the, the birthday gift, the, the, the trip, the raise, the whatever. That that's when, but, but how about appreciating someone on the little day-to-day stuff that nobody sees? I notice what you do. I want you to know this is what I appreciate about you. This is, this is, this, I'm puzzled. Would be another one. I'm puzzled or concerned. You say this, but you do this. Or, or, or I'm puzzled about this action. I'm puzzled about, could you help? See, none of those words are condemning. None of those words are threatening. And then you come to the place and say, hey, I notice you do this, but I, I really wish you would do this. And then you talk about, then you talk about hopes and dreams. Because when you talk about hopes and dreams, you know the relationship is intact. I feel like we're, we're going to continue to gather. And see, this is what Paul was doing. And Paul expressed this to them in three different ways. He expressed it through a life of integrity. Uh, verse 2, he says, make room for us in your heart. We have wronged no one, corrupted no one, taken advantage of no one. And so he's, he's trustworthy. In other words, he didn't try to exploit them. He didn't try to manipulate them with his encouragement to get what he wanted. He didn't have any ulterior motives. Paul is like, I just need you to know, we didn't exploit anyone. We didn't condemn anyone. We didn't corrupt anyone. Paul is, I mean, he lived this out. in His life integrity, the second way that he did this, is, man, it was just a sacrificial spirit. Verse 3, he said, I don't say this to condemn you since I've already said that you're in our hearts to die together and live together. And listen, <laughs> this is totally fascinating. Paul takes a phrase of their day and flips it. And it, it's, it's a phrase that is, is widely used in our day too. It was used in their day too. But Paul flips it. So in their day, they would commonly say, you know, we, we live together and we die together. And so in our world, what, like people will put that up like on T-shirts and, and it will be a banner over them. Hey, you know what? We live together and we die together, bro. That's how we live our life. We live our life that way. And Paul's like, no. That's how the world lives. As Christians, we reverse that. As Christians, guess what? We die together and we live together. Man, we die together and we live together. We die to self. We pick up his cross and follow him. Listen, we get that all wrong. A lot of people will say, just misquote the scripture. And we say, hey, pick up your cross and follow him. No, that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says we pick up his cross that once we come into the family of God, once we accept the gospel, then we pick up his cross and we start aligning ourselves with the scriptures and with the family. There's responsibility. And so we die together and we live together. And that once we die together and we're in Christ and we come into the family of God, then guess what? We live together for eternity. Man, I thought of this for the very first time when I was in Israel. Karen and I were taking a group to Israel in, in 2008 and and we went to Golgotha where, where Jesus was crucified. And so that's like a big day. 
And so you sit in these bleachers and you overlook Golgotha and you can actually see the place of the skull in the mountain. Uh, when Jesus was crucified there, it was a trash, trash dump and it's still a trash dump today. It's where they park all the tour buses now. And so it just, it's just a parking lot and it just stinks. And so you see these tour buses and you see Golgotha and then you can see where Christ was crucified. And you're sitting there and you listen to a little presentation. Our guide, Pilar, made this statement. And she, she says, well... Since this is your first time to Israel, this is your first time to experience this, let me explain to you what took place here. And when she said that, I'm standing beside her, and I'm, then I look over at Golgotha, and I says, you know what? I get it. Physically, this is my first time here, but it's not really my first time here. When I died to Christ, when I accepted him, I identified with him 1,900 years ago. He didn't die for himself. He died for you and he died for me. And I accepted him. And I died to self. And I identified with him. And my identity now is in Christ. In Christ alone. And as a result of that, Paul is trying to help them to understand that. And I, I just want you to know, I don't say this to condemn you. I don't say this to judge you. I am not questioning your love for me, and you shouldn't question my love for you. Because as believers, guess what? We die together, and we're going to live together. And we're going we're gonna to live together for eternity. That's why Paul said, this is for free. <laughs> That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that we... We live for eternity, and we, are, we were once unclothed, now we're clothed, perishable and imperishable, and that we live forever. And guess what? We live forever with one another, and we're in community. But Paul, Paul also looked at this, look at this, and then he looked at this by affirmation, 2 Corinthians chapter, four, or chapter 7, verse 4, he says, and I'm, I'm very frank with you. And I, I have great pride in you. Don't, you. don't you need to hear that? If someone is having a frank conversation with you, if someone is, is, uh, is encouraging you, don't you need to hear that? I mean, I, I, I just want you to know I'm still proud of you. And I still love you. I still accept you. And I'm filled with encouragement. I'm overflowing with joy in all of our afflictions. And, and, and this wasn't some hollow flattery just to manipulate people because sometimes people will use encouragement to manipulate you, to try to get you to do what they want. But this wasn't Paul, the second group of people that needs encouragement. A church leader needs encouragement from the church. A church leader, listen, I'm telling you, a church leader needs encouragement from the church. Verse 5, in fact, we came into Macedonia. We had no rest. Instead, we were troubled in every way. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. Paul is being, Paul is being honest. And so he's like, he's like, you know what? There's some conflicts on the outside. There's some fears within. And so Paul was coming to this place to where, and he was struggling. And so you gotta, you got to ask yourself, well, what is he talking about? Conflicts on the outside, fears within. Is that with him or what? No, it's the church body. 
as a church body. And Paul, when you look at Paul's life, he's one of those people that, that I wouldn't normally think would have any fear, right? I mean, when you look at Paul's life, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Uh, there are many times that he was beaten. There's many times that he was thrown in prison. There's many times that he stood up and he preached the gospel regardless of cost, regardless of what happened to him. And you would find in Paul's life that he was this guy. And you would think that this is one of those guys, this is one of those people. Man, this guy has no fear. And yet he just expressed to us, I've got conflicts on the outside. I've got fear within. You know his fear within? The conflicts on the outside were one thing. You know his fear within? He was in fear that would the church make it? See, the political structure of Corinth at that time, the things that were happening, it was seeping its way into the church, and they're all different opinions, much like COVID. And he said, I got to tell you, I got some fears within. Because there's a lot of different opinions out there. There are a lot of different thoughts out there. And he was wondering, will the church even survive? Will the church even make it? Man, listen, let me tell you something. Sometimes the people that appear to be the most bold or without fear on the outside are ones that are carrying the most fear and still need, still need spiritual encouragement, regardless of how spiritual they seem or how fearless they seem. I mean, one of the famous stories of President Abraham Lincoln I, for some reason, I just never forget this story. That when, when President Lincoln was assassinated, the, they took the contents of his pockets. And they took them out, and they're, they're now displayed. But, the, but in his pockets, there was a pocket knife, there was some Confederate money, and there was this yellowed newspaper clipping that he had clipped out, and it was frayed on the end because he had opened and closed it so many times. You know how the, the creases were even starting to, 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 to tear. And so it's interesting that the newspaper clipping was an editorial by a British writer who said that even though Abraham was criticized by most Americans, he thought Lincoln would go down as one of America's greatest presidents. Can you see him? President of the United States, one of those powerful positions, sitting in the White House opening and closing and reading and rereading that. Presidents need encouragement. Pastors need encouragement. Ministry leaders need encouragement. Elders, deacons need encouragement. Bible study teachers need encouragement. Moms and dads need encouragement. Children need encouragement. People, listen, people need encouragement. I, I have an encouragement file. Man, I have an encouragement file, um, electronic for emails that I've received, uh, text messages that I've received, cards that I received, and listen, those are, those are not light to me. I stick those in a file, and on some dark days, when I have conflicts on the outside, fears with the other, then you know what I do? I pull that file out, and I just start reading. I just start reading, and I start remembering that, yes, because some of the things that brings me the greatest encouragement is watching lives change, watching people get baptized, watching people break addictions, Watching God put marriages back together and relationships back together. Watching people come and worship who didn't worship at one time in their life. And listen, let me tell you something. We have talked about this a lot on staff. Two of the people that they are like heroes to us through COVID. Our elders and our life group leaders and our Bible study leaders. Man, they, through this, they were just rock solid. When I look at it and I think about our Bible study teachers and leaders and, and our life group leaders, 
when we went through the season to where we could no longer gather like this, can I tell you something? Our life group leaders stepped up. Our Bible study leaders stepped up, and they figured it out. Whether it was by Zoom, whether it was by, like, daily text messages or FaceTime, or whether it was coming up with some creative ways, meeting in a park, meeting in a backyard that was large and everybody could socially distance. But they just, listen, they were dealing with their own stuff in life, but they cared. They cared about their Bible study. They cared about their life group. I mean, it was like, it was like life to them. And listen, let me tell you something as a favor to me. If you're in a life group, if you're in a Bible study, if you have somebody around you that encourages you through this time, when you start your next Bible study, you take time and you tell your Bible study leader, you tell your life group leader how much you love them and how thankful you are for their commitment to Christ and their commitment to you. It was like life. This is what Paul's doing. This is what Paul's doing. 2 Corinthians 7, 6 says, But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the arrival of Titus. You know how God comforts you? Through people. He uses people. He uses people to comfort you. He uses people to encourage you. And Paul, Paul was encouraged by the arrival of Titus, his friend that brought him good news. See, Paul sent Titus to Corinthians to read this letter. And, and see, Titus just, Titus just couldn't, like, drop this letter in the mail. He couldn't, like, email it. You know, when they carried the circular letters of Paul around, you know what they did? So the person that carried the circular letter, it was their responsibility to stand up in front of the church, read the letter, and then defend it. They're a representative of Paul. And Titus had to do this. And Titus had to take a strong letter and then an encouraging letter. And then he goes on, verse 7, he says, not only... By his arrival, but also by the comfort received from you. He told us about your deep longing and your sorrow and your zeal for me so that I rejoiced even more. And then verse 9, he says, And now I rejoice because you were grieved, but because of your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God will so that you didn't experience any loss for us. And just real quickly, I, I just want to help you that when, when somebody... Well, let me put it this way. How do you know the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow? How do you know when you are frank with someone and say, hey, that hurt? How do, how do you know when their repentance is genuine? How do you know when they're genuine? I mean, do you, do you immediately trust? Do you, do you just blindly trust when someone did something to hurt you and, and say, you know what, we're all good? Or do you wait? Or, or how, do you, how do you know? How do you know if it's for real? Maybe it would be a better question. There's four, four ways that we can know. And just real quickly, I'll run through these just so you have them. The difference between like godly repentance and worldly sorrow. And this is godly sorrow is truly remorseful over sin. See, worldly sorrow, you're just sorry you got caught. <laughs> You're just sorry you got to go through these consequences. You're just sorry that someone exposed you. You're, you're angry at the person that tells you, hey, I think you're on the rumble strips. Hey, I think you're headed for the ditch. Hey, I think you're going over the cliff. Or you're angry at the person that, that like checked your email or checked your text message or checked up on you or, or checked up on your whereabouts, and all of a sudden you're angry. You're just angry at the person. Another one is this. Godly sorrow admits they're wrong, and they don't blame. When someone is truly repentant, 
They don't blame anyone. They're, they're not saying, well, you know what? The reason I said that is because you did this. If you hadn't have done that, then I wouldn't have done this. Or because I did this. And, and all of a sudden, they start blaming. That is not godly repentance. Godly repentance, godly sorrow is this. I'm going to own my actions. And I was wrong. Your sin doesn't justify my actions. I'm responsible for my words. I'm responsible for my actions. And then another one, godly sorrow is, is, is accompanied by a change of behavior. Maybe not perfection at some point, but all of a sudden you can see that, you know what? They, they weren't manipulating me. They weren't just trying to get out from under the consequences. They just weren't trying to get back in my good graces. They, you know what? There's a change of behavior. There's a change in the words that they use. There's a change in the attitude. There's a change in the actions. I can... I can like see it. It may not be perfection yet, but I can see that like they're headed that way. And then godly sorrow leads to salvation, but, but worldly, worldly sorrow leads to death. For consider verse 11, consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God wills has produced in you. What a desire to clear yourself. What, what indignation, what fear, what deep longing, what zeal, what justice. In every way you showed yourself to be pure in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was not because of, of the one who did wrong, but because of the one who was wrong, in order that your devotion to us might be plain to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we've been comforted. In addition to our own comfort, we rejoice even more over the joy Titus had because his, his spirit was refreshed by all of you. And you, he saw this change in action. The third and the last thing is this. We need to encourage people around us. Man, it seems like the world that we live in, people are like more angry than they've ever been, more judgmental than they've ever been. It seems like there's not any grace. It seems like people can get angry at a moment's notice. When Karen and I, we were making our way out of Texas, and we stopped in Dairy Queen. Now, listen, the, this, this is just something I need to process just real quickly. <laughs> the Dairy Queen menu in Colorado is nothing like the Dairy Queen menu in Texas, and I'm still upset about that. You can't get steak fingers in Dairy Queen in Colorado. You can, but anyway, we need to move on. <laughs> so we're in this Dairy Queen. In Hearn, Texas, big city of Hearn, they got more cows than people. And so we're in Hearn, Texas, and then they had made, they had made this handwritten sign. I don't know if they got it somewhere. They made this sign, and it said, hey, throw, uh, throw kindness around like confetti. That should be us. That should be us as believers. We, you know what, whether we're in Walmart whether we're in a grocery store, whether you're on the road, whether we're ever, whether we're in church, you know what we should do? We should throw kindness around like confetti. People should be able to say of us that, you know what, that is a kind group of people. They're just kind. They're just kind to one another. Isn't that what Jesus says? Jesus says they will know you by what? They will know you by your love. And so we need to learn. I'm just telling you. Instead of questioning each other's faith because of what they believe about COVID or what they believe about masks or what they believe about a vaccine or what they believe about any of that stuff, how about just be kind? How about being loving? How about being supportive? This is what Paul says in verse 13. He says, for this reason, we have been comforted. 
In addition to our own comfort, we rejoice even more over the joy Titus had because his spirit was refreshed by all of you. And all of a sudden you realize that, that, that they were encouraged, they were refreshed by this, this relationship. See, here's what Paul did. Paul believed the best. Listen, I'm telling you, Paul believed the best in the Corinthians. And he believed the best in the Corinthian church, even though at that point they were making some poor choices. And Paul had told Titus, Titus, you're going to take this letter to the Corinthians, and you're going to stand up in their church, and you're going to read this letter. But here's what I'm going to tell you. I believe the best in them. They're going to receive this. They're going to make some changes, and we're going to stay in relationship to one another. Can I tell you this? We need to believe the best in one another. Encouragement is not questioning someone's love for you, someone's encouragement for you. At the end of the day, we believe the best in one another. I would much rather believe the best in someone and they disappoint me than to believe in the worst in someone and being wrong. Just being wrong. And Paul goes on, verse 14, For if I've made any boast to him about you, I've not been disappointed, because I've spoken everything in you in truth. So boasting to Titus, he also turned out to be the truth. Verse 15, And his affection towards you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all. And how you received him with fear and trembling, I rejoice that I have complete confidence in you. And his affection towards you is even greater as he remembers your obedience. When you encourage properly, something happens in the relationship deepens. Every one of us, every one of us needs people around us that it can encourage us in a biblical way. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes?